Okay, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna read 12 cards. So last year, because of the pandemic, they were obviously more pandemic themed. So we have, let's quarantine together. <laughs> Eat the rich, then me. <laughs> you must be a gin because you're a smoke show. That was because, That's the like, one the, I have on my, on, we have it on our fridge. Yeah. Really? Yeah, 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 that's the one you sent me. My favorite position is mutual aid. <laughs> Hi, Shah Jahan. How is it going? Hi, Sadia. Going all right. How you doing? I'm doing well. We are actually in the studio today. That's exciting. Yeah, it is so exciting. I am really excited about today's episode because we are going to talk about self-love. It's a bit tricky for me, um, but people will find out why. So just keep listening. So Shah Jahan, we are recording this post our interview with our today's right. guest. Any thoughts on that? On the fact that we're recording it after we're yeah. done? Uh, because we just forgot to do it before. <laughs> basically, <laughs> we just, no, because no, actually, we, were kicked we, out. Ran, we basically we got kicked out because our conversation with our guest Taz, uh, Tanzila Taz Ahmed was so uh, involved. We basically just lost track of time. And yeah, the studio had another session, so we had to leave. <laughs> yeah, and now we're recording it again. So yeah. that's fun. Um, in terms of questions, what did you think? There was a surprise there, right? Yeah, so Taz is, she's a very old friend of mine. Uh, she is someone who, I'm going to quote a little bit directly from her website, plays at the intersections of pop and politics through a variety of mediums and actions motivated by her Bangladeshi and Muslim upbringing in Southern California. She started her career as an activist by creating a political voice for those most marginalized in the backlash of September 11th. So she's you know, been organizing for a long time. She is also the co-founder of the extremely well-known um, and one of the first, I think, one of the pioneers of the um, of these sorts of podcasts, uh, Good Muslim, Bad Muslim, which she co-hosted with Zara Nurbaksh. Uh, she's also like a poet, a screenwriter. Uh, uh, she has this uh, current run of uh, Muslim Valentine's Day cards. So yeah. she's like... Yeah, she's just nonstop in terms of her output. She paints now, and it's it's been really special to watch because I feel like her creative journey and mine in terms of like my other work and music and stuff have sort of been in a way, you know, side by side and just we've, we've been supporters of each other's work for a really long time. So I'm, I was super excited to have her here, which is probably half the reason at least why it went so long and we ran out of time. <laughs> uh, the interesting thing about um, Taz's interview is even though the topic is self-love, we had a very specific lens through which we had planned to ask her questions initially, yeah. which I think did revolve a lot around dating and, and looking at the self stuff in relationship with that. And Taz, one thing I really appreciate about her is she she just kind of like let us know that like, hey, like this shit's kind of boring. Let's talk about something a little more interesting, you know, and especially because it's about self-love and especially the idea of being like radically single or just like mm. choosing to be single and kind of what that means. She kind of like helped us guide this conversation in a really, I think, much more impactful and like meaningful way. Absolutely. And in contradiction of how women are put in these boxes, right? What I enjoyed about the conversation was 
how she talks about stuff that women often don't talk about so it was very liberating for me as well listening to her as someone in her 40s talking about stuff that really matters so it was just such an awesome such a fulfilling conversation and hence um that long interview yeah absolutely so then let's get started Oh, when I hear the word self-lover, um, I, I mean, I think it's, it is, it's, it's so silly, right? Like it's just loving yourself and having love for yourself. I don't, I, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I didn't really think about this question. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. Way. It's fine because Sadia asked me before we started and I was also trying to figure out, uh, it's actually, I think it's interesting if you tell me, tell us why you asked me that question. As I was telling you, Shah Jahan, before the interview started, self-love is tricky for me. Having grown up in Pakistan, collectivist society, where the focus is on collective well-being um, versus individual well-being, I find the concept selfish at times. And this is so oh, crazy because I do practice self-love now and it manifests in different ways, like recognizing one's words and taking care of oneself. But at the same time, I'm curious to know how self-love in an individualistic society versus collectivist society is different and how it manifests differently for different people. Yeah, that's really fascinating because I do think in America we are an individualistic society. But I mean, I do think that, you know, culturally, my background is Bangladeshi, you know, I'm Muslim. Um, there is a lot of sacrifice, right? Like you have to sacrifice yourself for your family or I'm the eldest daughter. So it's, it's the expectation is I'm supposed to do do things for for my dad that my other sisters don't have to do. You know, there is that. But I don't think that really is in contradiction to self-love too. You can have, you know, love for your family and have love for yourself. I think the thing that I hear in what you were, you were just saying is shame. Like this idea that society wants us to feel ashamed for things. And I do, I think there are two sides of kind of the same coin, if that makes any sense. I just think that you, you can have empathy for other people and love for yourself at the same time. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think shame is the right word. In Pakistan, at least, it seems like an individual belongs to the society rather than belonging to themselves, right? So as you said, I will make sacrifices to make my family happy. Whatever I do has an impact on my family. It's how my family sees it. And especially for women, I guess we judge ourselves harshly. We want to please our families. And I think that's where the contradiction sometimes lies for me as I'm trying to break away from it, having lived in the U.S. for almost two decades. Sometimes I just retract and I'm like, am I being selfish? And I have to check that and I have to retrain myself and unlearn some of it. But I'm interested in knowing more from you, Shah Jahan, as well, because both you and Taz probably share similar experiences and background having grown up here? I think to a degree, yes, but definitely keeping in mind that, yeah, we may be both eldest siblings, but I'm like an eldest male. 
sibling. You know, you'd have to talk to my sisters again about lots of stuff and stuff that I've come to understand about the different privileges that I had in terms of the leniency that I was given, even in some ways in terms of what I'm doing now. I mean, definitely one thing I also wanted to ask you, Taz, was just to me, you're somebody that practices if there is a, such a thing as like radical self-love. And I just was kind of curious, knowing you and knowing all your social justice stuff, all your art, uh, which we're going to talk about. I know for me, music and stuff has been maybe this at times feeling the selfish but self-propelling thing that I wanted to do. Do you think that some of that has been your experience as well, like doing this creative stuff as a way to love yourself? I think that's really interesting. You know, the reason why I'm an activist and I, you know, participate in social justice is because I want to make the world a better place, which I see as being rather selfless. I've given myself to this movement. I've given myself to registering people to vote, to protesting, you know, for fighting for other people's rights. But now I'm fighting for the people in this building. I, I'm in a tenants association and oh, there's nice. a lot of fi fighting happening here too. But none of that is for myself. That's for other people. But I think as an empath, and someone who wants to do good in this world, that's part of it. There's this idea of sacrificing yourself for the bigger movement. But I think as I'm now in my 40s, I don't want to like die for this movement, give so much of myself where I lose myself. So I think that's been more of where I'm trying to find my balance. How do we both make this world a better place? How do we make sure that there are seven generations ahead of us that are going to have a land to live on while also protecting you know, my, my life and my way of existing in this world for the time that I'm here. You know, talking about your advocacy work and, and your activism, you've done plenty of it and you've tried to amplify other people's voices through different platforms. Um, I started listening to your podcast a couple of years back and I was so fascinated by different issues that you were discussing and the content that you were creating. How has that impacted your relationship with yourself? When I was in my 20s, I used to write on this blog called Sepia Mutiny, which is the largest South Asian blog ever. And I mean, blogs aren't a thing anymore, but Shout at the time CB it Mutiny, was like... Whatever, it was amazing. <laughs> it was yeah. amazing, you know, because it was a site where all these brown people in America would just go and get their brown news. Now it seems silly because... They're brown news. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. There's yeah. so much, so much brownness in society. <laughs> But when I was writing there, I really didn't want to tell my personal story. And then I uh, got my master's, I was getting my master's degree uh, in public policy with a focus on critical race theory. And a big part of critical race theory, which is also now in the news in a stupid way, but is not talked about the way that I was trained in it. But um, we learned that telling counter narratives is so important to empowering communities of color. So, and a big part of telling counter narratives is recentering our stories. And um, I really learned that for me to actually empower my community and, you know, get people um, engaged, I needed to be personal and tell vulnerable stories and like be really. Um, in the individual story, you can like touch more people and move, yeah, just move more people to take action. Um, so that was kind of my process in my 30s was just like this idea of storytelling. And for me, that was really, it was gratifying, but it was also just understanding that the more we tell our own stories, the more we tell stories of, 
myself, but also like each individual person, the more other people will gravitate towards it and the, the more other people will feel empowered and it, you know, these ripples of change are created. And I think that's kind of uh, my, my biggest learning from being out in the world and sharing art and poetry and writing and everything. We're shifting the political paradigm that exists for being brown in America in these like really little tiny cultural shifts. And that's been really amazing to see. And it makes me want to just keep on creating and keep on doing more stuff. I am intrigued whether you discovered something about yourself that you didn't know or you were unaware of at a conscious level through this process. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Everything is a learning process. Life is a constant learning process. I think after writing about how my mom died, that process was people like really gravitated towards grief. So that was kind of a learning process, just sharing your vulnerability and then uh right you know all the stories we talked about in our good muslim bad muslim podcast those were all also uh, just seeing like how white people gravitated towards those those narratives because they've never heard from a muslim person before you know like there's just like so many things but i think just for me the big picture thing is culture shift makes a difference doing culture doing art doing storytelling culture is constantly shifting also mm. so like it, there is kind of this back and forth Hmm. Yeah. And along those lines, I think we're definitely talking about like finding one's own voice, right? For yeah. sure. So one thing I wanted to ask you was, you know, now you've, by now you've written a couple feature film scripts and stuff too. I was curious, like, what are some of the boxes people tried to put you into? If that makes sense. Like when you guys, when, when you um, had, had the show Good Muslim, Bad Muslim, uh, and you started to become you know, more like known for, for the, the kind of stuff that you're doing, the stuff that you're talking about, like, what are the ways in which maybe people tried to like define you that maybe were unwelcome, yeah. you know, if that makes sense. Oh my Especially, gosh, there's like yeah. so many, yeah. right? Like being brown in America, people are constantly racializing you from the moment they see your skin tone. So, uh, I mean, there are podcasts in Muslim Bad Muslim. It was, it was me and Zara Norbash. We were around for five years. Uh, we started right after the serial podcast. So we started in January, 2015. And we went for five years. We were a monthly podcast because we didn't want to talk about microaggressions on a weekly weekly basis or hate crimes. And our podcast was around right when uh, the Trump election happened. So we were there for 2016. We were there for 2017 when he came into office. So we really, uh, it, it really is kind of a snapshot into this particularly interesting time in Islam in America because we were talking about everything that was happening. And the reason why we called it the Good Muslim, Bad Muslim podcast is this idea that, you know, uh, no matter what aspect of you, like people will put you in these good Muslim boxes or bad Muslim boxes. So like for me growing up, I was considered um, a, a good Muslim because I wouldn't drink or I wouldn't do drugs. But to my parents, I was a bad Muslim because I would go to punk shows. Just this idea that no matter where you are in society, people would think of you as good or bad. So what we were really trying to do with our podcast was disrupt that, um, those boxes that we were being put into. And I think uh, what you're asking, Shaj, about like, you know, different kinds of boxes. I, I don't know. Yeah, I think there's, there, oh, society's always, either like white society's trying to put me in a box or brown society's trying to put me in a box. White society's trying to tell me that I'm a terrorist and then brown society's trying to tell me 
that I'm a terrorist for not being married. You know, like there's like, <laughs> there's this kind of like, doesn't matter where you come from. Like, yeah. I was actually, I was kind of interested in the, if we want to focus on the brown box for a second. Yeah. Like, what are some of those, I don't know, what are some of the things that, you know, whatever being who you are, being like, you know, super out there about being single and stuff. And, you know, like, what are some of the boxes that people put you into, like, with that? I mean, you... I got to be honest, I haven't been around brown, brown aunties for the pandemic. So it's been kind of <laughs> nice to not hear anything. So I'm not yeah. quite sure what they're saying about me right now. <laughs> but, you know, like definitely growing up, uh, I wasn't a doctor or engineer. I mm-hmm. was a environmental, you know, chemistry undergrad major. And then I got my public policy degree. There was definitely that whole like education thing, you know, like you have to be an engineer or doctor. And then, you know, my activism was a hobby to them until, you know, I I got an award from the White House. And then all of a sudden, it, like my dad had something to brag about to like aunties <laughs> and everything and uncles. So like then that I was legitimized. Um, but even then, like I remember being at a wedding after coming back from the, that award ceremony and an auntie was like, oh, aren't you, uh, when are you going to get married? I was like, I got an award from President Obama. Like, That's <laughs> like, nice, but more? when are you going to get married? And I'm just like, oh my God, there's this idea that like, no matter what I do, I mean, that was a pretty big deal to get an yeah. award from President Obama for her to like disrupt it with this whole like, when are you getting married? Sadi, I saw, I saw you sort of laughing along. There's so much to unpack here, Taz. Activism <laughs> being hobby. I am told that all the time. I have a prior MBA and Abu is always confused as to why I'm pursuing this and not going back to a nine to five job. I want to circle back to women and how women are perceived in any society for that matter. I don't want to call out just Eastern societies because Western societies are as fucked up in many ways. But the way I see it, women are assumed to have some kind of expiry date it seems like as if we are sitting on these shelves waiting to expire. That's how we are treated, right? If I look at my life and my journey, I followed a very conventional path. I did everything early on. I got married in my early 20s. I had kids in my 20s. And yet there is so much to explore. There is so much that remains unfulfilled for me as a woman in my 40s now. I'm curious to know, how do you see society looking at us as women in their 40s and making that judgment of where we should be and how our lives should have turned out? Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, my God, I have so many thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) You know, one of the things that I think about when I hear stories like yours where you got had kids in your 20s, I'm just like, oh, my God, I was in such a different place in my 20s. That means your kids are like teenagers now, right? Like, (laughs) I'm just like, oh my God, there are people my age with teenagers. And that is really a reality that's really hard for me to grasp. I think it was really difficult to be a brown kid in the 80s in the US because I didn't have any other brown friends. I literally didn't have brown men to date in my 20s because it just wasn't a thing here, you know, like because of the way that the population growth was happening, right? This gets more into like 1965 post, you know, immigration act migration patterns, but it does feed into like the idea of like dating in America, right? I feel like the younger generation has much more um, access to 
each other than we did in the 80s when we didn't have internet. But I do think that um, because of, it's not just like women in their 40s, it's like women in their 40s in in these, like growing up in the 80s and 90s, because that that is a different experience than what the current generation is going through because they're going to have access to internet and they're going to have access to language that we didn't have. I didn't learn any any of these ideas of race until I got my master's degree because I had to go to school. But like all these kids are going to high school. They're literally having critical race theory debates in like, you know, if that should be an elementary school. Like that's such a foreign concept. Like we didn't have access to knowledge. And I think that's been really interesting too. We're kind of Gen X millennial and like the Gen Zs are are just having a much different experience than we are. I also think it's a different generation of parents, right? So as a parent, I am more open to a lot of stuff that your parents probably weren't. And I'm assuming here, but like I am okay with my daughter's dating. I don't know how your parents approach that. And for somebody who grew up in Pakistan, it's like... In Pakistan, it's still tabooed to some degree, not as much, I guess. There are so many factors, but coming back to women in their 40s and there's so much that we have to offer and there's so much that we want to do. And no matter what path we follow or what journey we've been on, we still want to explore a lot more. And that's what I think people should understand, right? And not put us in these different silos and boxes. Yeah, I, you know, I've been spending a lot of time watching a lot of TV during this pandemic, as, as I, we I all imagine <laughs> all, a lot of us are. And I think it's just, you know, there aren't a lot of movies and TV shows with 40-somethings. Mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, there's no, there's not a lot of TV shows with, like, women of color. The, the big movies that we've seen with South Asians um, are usually South Asian Muslim men, right? There aren't even any with South Asian American women and definitely not South Asian American Muslim women. And so we already aren't being seen in the media. And then you, you know, intersect that with 40 plus there's definitely like, I don't see myself in TV, you know, like there's nothing out there. I was just looking at this picture of the girls of golden girls next to the girls of sex in the city. And it was like saying that Blanche was like 53 when she filmed this and they made her look so old. And then you look at sex in the city and Carrie Bradshaw looks so young. And you're just like, even just in that time period, how women are being portrayed is so, so different than what we're used to. I was interested Taz in, um, so knowing you for uh, quite some time, knowing some of the stuff that you do, like uh, you're a very prolific writer, a thinker, just like a person in general, but like you travel a lot and you go on like really cool residencies and stuff like that. And I, maybe for somebody who's never done something like that, uh, like what is it about taking taking that kind of time deliberately for yourself that allows you to like be a better you? And maybe I'll read the, the quote now that I was thinking. Um, you could, it, it's maybe kind of like two, two questions in one. Taz also, for those of you that don't know, has this amazing sub stack that you should all subscribe to. We'll put the link in our, in our notes afterwards. I'm often scared at the thought of traveling alone, scared to go out at night or to go on a hike where my phone won't get reception. I wish I was one of those single women who felt comfortable enough in the outside world to swipe on Tinder in new cities, but I've listened to too many crime podcasts doing exactly the same thing. I'm scared mostly, though, of white supremacists. 
I guess I'm asking you two different questions. One about the awesomeness of traveling alone, but one about uh, that in context of who you are and how you present yourself outward, if that makes sense. Yeah, I forgot I wrote that. <laughs> Thanks for reading that. <laughs> yeah, I read all your stuff. <laughs> Apparently, I don't remember any of the things I write. That's what happens. When did I first, you know, I... Yeah, that's a good question. What was your first, like, solo travel trip? I can't remember the first solo trip I've did. Because I, th I think there was, like, a lot of, like, you shouldn't go travel by yourself as a brown woman. You know, you need it, like, you know, don't go on, like to gorgeous exotic places, save that for your honeymoon. You know, like there's these ideas that you're only supposed to travel with your partner or with someone else. And I I think I did spend a lot of my my 20s saving my fun travel for, for a future partner that never came along. And then, you know, I think I just thought that I was like missing out on life. Like I was like saving my life for this like mythical creature that was supposed to come and like I was supposed to start my life then you might you both might remember this but there was a time where like everyone was going backpacking in India like that was a thing that was happening e e pray love yeah it was yeah. e pray love and it was like all of our brown friends were like going back yeah. to backpack there for so I went my Kala was living in Delhi she was working in the Bangladesh embassy at the time so I went to Delhi and then from Delhi I like traveled around a lot by myself and that was really great actually because I and I think I do feel like I was empowered to travel by myself because I had heard of other brown friends that had done it um, I ended up going to Bangalore meeting up with someone I ended up going to Ahmedabad with someone else that was fun and then I did like one like really epic trip and this was right after Shaj came through LA right after the Kaminas came through. And I was, I had just like quit my job and I was kind of like, I had just turned 30 and I was like, screw this. I'm gonna like, you know, make the world mine. And then I, and on that trip, I went to Bangladesh, India, Sri Lanka and Dubai. So I did this kind of like really epic long trip by myself. And it was so much fun and empowering. And I had like, different experiences in every location I went to. Of course, I had like friends in most of those places, but I just decided I didn't want to wait for anyone. Like I, I'm not waiting, I'm not saving my life for someone else. Like this is mm -hmm. it, this is all we have right now. And we have to go experience it. Even if it's scary and there's white supremacists out there and I yeah. might end up the victim of a murder podcast, who knows, you know, like. The way that you're talking about like saving whatever, saving the good times for later or when, you know, people think you're going to get married or something or for your partner um, versus loving yourself like mm -hmm. right now and that it's important to like do the stuff. You know, I'm, I'm curious how maybe somebody like you might think of Asadia. As I'm listening to you, I'm like, when did I travel solo? And the answer is probably never. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah. I want to do that. But I think as I'm, also scared to do that because I've yeah. never done it right. And there, there's so much, I guess, unknown for me. I want to pivot a little and talk about something that I recently discovered, Muslim V-Day cards. I am on Etsy all the time. So all my nose rings, nose pins, anklets, everything comes from Etsy. 
Oh my God, you have to share me the shops that you go to. <laughs> I'll do that. I discovered your Vide cards and they are amazing. Do you want me to read the cards I made this year? Yes. Yeah. Let me go get it. Hold on. I voted on your... Uh... The, she had she had a uh, she was like a rank choice voting and usually she she'll do this every year just kind of uh, tell people kind of like these are all the ideas I have um, help me you know crowdsource uh-huh. maybe just uh, you guys maybe pick your favorite one or something like that so I was I, I enjoy voting once Daz reads them then yeah. I want to know which one was your favorite oh I'll have to look it up I have to tell her what I sent okay I'm gonna do I'm gonna read twelve cards so last year because of the pandemic they were obviously more pandemic themed. So we have let's quarantine together. (laughs) Eat the rich than me. (laughs) You must be a gin because you're a smoke show. That was because the one I have on my, we have it on our fridge. Yeah. Really? Yeah. 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 That's the one you sent me. That was actually like inspired by the bachelor because the bachelor show kept talking about smoke shows. Anyway. My favorite position is mutual aid. (laughs) <laughs> guess i gotta break my fast because you look like a snack and i'll show you a big stimulus package <laughs> would you be mine would it be mine <laughs> um this one is inspired by the the mole in care in ohio i've got my spies on you <laughs> eyes this one was inspired by me going through a TSA checkpoint, I guess, uh, and they were telling me to spread my thighs so that they could grab in between it. It was really <laughs> embarrassing. Um, so this is spread my thighs wide like TSA does. I needed um, one because Dune was in, you know, okay, yeah. Dune was in. So I said, uh, how you doing? <laughs> how you doing? How um, <laughs> Call me an extremist because I'm extremely into you. <laughs> yeah, I really like this one. That's the one that I voted for. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, because of what happened in Afghanistan, I'll pull I'll pull out faster than the U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan. <laughs> <laughs> How did you come about doing that? And what does it say about where you are um, in your life, mentally, physically even? What does it yeah. tell us? I know it is kind of funny that it, to me, I think it's funny that I ha- put out these like Valentine's Day cards when I'm like not in a relationship and have no one to give the cards to. But I started these cards when um, I was doing press for the book Love and Shella, which I'm in. Um, and uh, we were it's a, a, the, it's called it's called Love and Shella, the secret love lives of American Muslim women. And it's an anthology of 26 women. It came out in 2011. It was the first book I was in. I'm very proud of that. I ended up having a column on their website for a long time. And when we were doing press for the book, um, all these reporters were asking really stupid questions about like, do Muslim women love? I thought all Muslim women got arranged marriages. And then they were just stupid questions. And I it like really made me think about like how, how, uh, stereotypes of Muslim and brown women exist in the imagination of white people. And it frustrated me. So I wanted to make a project where I disrupted that narrative. So this art project is like, I hand paint these cards six every year. And then I come up with like, like cheesy um, sayings every year. Um, The thing that I 
I'm specifically trying to do with this art project. I have so many projects, but this particular one, I'm trying to disrupt the narrative. So I'm trying to make people feel uncomfortable because I think I think the cards are really funny, but I also think that like if people are uncomfortable, it kind of like makes them like check themselves, and there's kind of a change that happens in that process. So um, their cards are inappropriate, but I think it works. I think people laugh and they're uncomfortable with it. I keep thinking that I'm like too old to make these cards, but now I'm on my ninth year of making them because society keeps giving me great content and they, they keep having to make them. I hope to continuously keep getting these mm. cards when I'm even in like a nursing home or something. I really, <laughs> I, really, I really look forward to it every year. So I actually, I wanted to just pivot back to one thing, if it was possible, when you were talking about um, the pandemic and stuff, and I'm going to quote another thing from your Substack because I love it so much. I have learned this pandemic that my love language is sharing experiences with other people. A grown-up version of a sleepover is renting a house for a weekend in the desert or forest or beach, going vintage shopping together, cooking for each other, watching bad movies together, getting elevated together, taking sexy Instagram photos of each other because we are our own witnesses, telling fiction stories that we are writing to each other, and painting on canvas next to each other. Um, so this idea that, like, the sharing experiences is like a love language. I don't know if this sounds like super lame, but like, what do you think your maybe your could it also be like a self love language having these and in terms of like the way you travel, it's kind of like having an experience that you're sharing with a part of yourself, maybe that needs to be nurtured. Um, just as someone that you you do seek out a lot of these experiences, you know, and I've had the privilege to like read some of your scripts and stuff, and just like you really intentionally go out of your way to like seek out these just amazing experiences and journeys. And I'm just wondering if just to sort of connect it to our theme a little bit, is is it part of maybe your own self-love language type thing? I think it gets lonely to do these things by yourself, right? Like I think the whole, like I could paint by myself. I could read a book by myself. I could talk to myself about whatever project I'm working, you know, like that's not fun though. That's not like, that's not really, um, that gets really, that gets like actually really, really lonely. So I think that is why like, I enjoy like experiencing life with other people. Hmm. I think- Like friend love kind of you were saying. Yeah, totally yeah. friend love. And and just so much of being a woman in society is like going on these stupid dates with stupid men and just like having like, you know, bad first date dinners and having to have these like ridiculous conversations where it's just the same thing over and over again. And I just got so tired of that. I was like, I don't want that. I don't want that for like 20 years. Like I want like to experience other aspects of life, which is why I, I had to take a break from dating. I was like, I can't do this. And then I really had to like reanal make an analysis of like, what is it that gives me joy in this life? And I think friends and experiencing life with friends gives me joy. I'm not I'm not into like, like, I don't get really excited with like buying a brand new car or like getting, you know, the capitalism doesn't excite me. Um, I don't know other, I actually don't know what other love languages there are. I guess it's like, I don't either. People, I was hoping right? you did. <laughs> There's like five love languages. One's yeah. touching, one's giving, one's experiences. So Daz, are you a planner? Do you have anything planned, any projects, anything that you're excited about? In, in 2022? Usually I am a big planner, but I've been spending this past year trying to not plan. So I've been trying to um, 
I've been actively trying not to work, which is kind of a silly thing to say, but I had, I've been burnt out for the past, uh, you know, <laughs> years of working pre-pandemic. So I've really spent the past, uh, actively been spending the past year getting bored to the point of creativity, which I think is a thing, right? Like we need to like, when we always have projects and things lined up, we're always kind of like hustling, trying to find the next thing. But I think there's something to be said about getting bored and that bored, in that boredom, you can find something that you want to create and make. And so I'm at the bored stage of my life. I'm, I'm literally trying to make myself so bored that I will just make new things. And then I think the next phase is like looking through the things that I spent making during this time and then seeing if I could turn them into real projects. So like the script I was working on was like, I worked on a script this year and it was just like, that was like one of the, I don't have any goals for it. I just wanted to make, put out a story. Um, I totally, I'm working... I, I can identify. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just going to say, I identify with that so much, which is why I kind of started this new music project last year. And right? because of the boredom, it turned into something. And now it's like doing all these fun things, but yeah, totally. Yeah, I think yeah. there's like something to be said about create, like to be really creative, you really need to let your mind wander. Mm. And I think we're in this society where like, it's always like, okay, what's next, what's next? And I definitely like, at the height of Good Muslim, Bad Muslim, I, I had like a day job, I had a side job, I had Good Muslim, Bad Muslim, I was making these, pro you know, art projects. I didn't have time to get bored to be creative. I was just kind of like trying to finish my to-do list and I was getting burned out because I wasn't finding, I wasn't, I wasn't healthy. I wasn't like taking care of my body and I wasn't like having joy. So yeah, it's been fun. I, I think that's like my biggest lesson from this past year is like get, allow yourself to get bored mm. so that you can find your inner creativity. So this is a question that I, we ask our guests um, in the end, it has nothing to do with love, self-love, but it has a lot to do with where we are right now. Um, if you were to define the U.S. in a word or a sentence, how would you do that? Um, uh, late stage capitalism, <laughs> apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say the first one was very textbook. <laughs> Falling apart. <laughs> At the seams. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like it. Yeah. Especially with election year. I know. Oh. Mm -hmm. Wild stuff. What are other people saying? Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. There's those, so yeah. many things. I can't even, like, I don't remember specifically, but we've gotten some really interesting answers. It's a recurring theme throughout our podcast. So a lot of people have said a lot of things about the U.S. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't remember what you said, Shah Jahan. I don't either. Yeah, we'll have to go <laughs> back was, and listen. It was, it was a while ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I don't, I think we... Chaz, that was awesome. Thank you it was so much. So much fun. So yeah, I mean, I think we had a pretty epic intro to this episode. I think we kind of talked about everything we're probably going to talk about, right? Like, what is what is there what is there left to say about this interview? <laughs> yeah, you're so right. Although I'm curious to know what people thought. So if you liked the interview or if you liked something 
about our conversation, you can DM us, you can write to us at info at immigrantypod.com and let us know your thoughts. I guess that's it, right? Yeah, I think so. So take care until next time when we have another incredible guest. Thanks everybody for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. That's all for this week. To learn more about that episode and stay in the loop on all things Immigrantly, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Immigrantly underscore pod and on Instagram at Immigrantly pod. Today's episode was written by Anushka Rai, edited by Bronte Cook and produced by Kylie C. Roberts and me, Sadia Khan, with help from Asad Bhatt from Refilion Media.